I've said uh, for many years, when I get to heaven, I'm going to uh, master playing the uh, piano. I'm also going to take up the trombone. I love the sound of the trombone. You've got a billion years to be able to learn. I think I can even learn in that length of time. Well, turning your Bibles to Joshua chapter 24, uh, this is the last message in a several month series on the book of Joshua as we've been systematically working through this book. As I mentioned earlier, if we know any verse from the book of Joshua, it's the verse that Joshua himself expresses in this chapter as for me and my house, uh, we will serve the Lord. By way of overview, we know that the people of Israel make a commitment uh, in this chapter it's a commitment that's short-lived. By the time we get to the book of Judges, they're already disobeying God and chasing other uh, idols. So, uh, obviously, uh, they express these words. These words don't have any long-term meaning, which obviously is disappointing. Dr. Graham Scroggy, a well-known preacher of a number of years ago, uh, made the observation that as we look at a book like Joshua, uh, it reminds us of what is the case so often on a Christian life. Uh, whereas Christians, we have great desire to be able to do some things for God, but not much in the way of follow through. Uh, he expressed it this way. The trouble with so many of us is that we're on the right side of Easter, but the wrong side of Pentecost, the right side of pardon, but the wrong side of power. We're justified, but not sanctified. It's not enough to say that we are forgiven. We are called, says the book. Unto holiness. Now, if I uh, explain this chapter well today, you'll understand the significance of that last uh, phrase and the challenge before us. Uh, why is it that so often we can say the flesh is willing, but the spirit is weak? And invariably, that's our testimony. We want to do some things for God, but we don't seem to have the power uh, to be able to follow through with it. As you look at verse 1 of Joshua chapter uh, 24, we find that Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. I, I wouldn't expect necessarily that that is going to mean a lot to uh, uh, many of you. But to remind you of a little Old Testament history. First of all, as we look at the book of Joshua, I've been saying now for several weeks that Joshua is the book of victory. The reason it's the book of victory is because they experienced so many victories in this book. Uh, the other thing is that this is a book... Uh, that is the fulfillment of the promise that was given to Abraham some 700 years earlier. In Genesis chapter 12, by the oak at Shechem, you get the significance here now, God made a promise to Abraham. And God promised Abraham, Abraham, you're going to have some children. Uh, those children are going to become a nation. That nation is going to have a land, this very land that they now claim in the days of Joshua. And through that nation, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So 700 years earlier, at this very spot, God made a promise to Abraham, your descendants are going to claim a land. By the time we get to uh, Joshua 24, they have claimed the land. God has given them uh, victory. So it's highly significant that now they're coming back to this spot where God made the promise uh, to Abraham some 700 years earlier, and now it's being fulfilled. We can also note uh, that Shechem was the spot uh, where Jacob purchased some land. It was the second piece of property uh, that was purchased. Remember, Abraham bought the cave of Machpelah uh, in Hebron, uh, and we talked about that some time ago. This was the second piece of property uh, that any Jew purchased. It was at Shechem. It was to be a grave site for 
Joseph. And we're going to find at the end of this chapter, Joseph's bones are carried back to Shechem. So Shechem is significant for that reason. It's another way of reaffirming the promise that Joseph was able to claim one day my very bones will be buried in the land of promise. Shechem is also the spot where Jacob, known as Israel, um, decided that he was going to follow God. He was going to follow God faithfully. And so he buried all of his idols in Shechem. And you'll see the significance of that at the end of this book in verse 23, where uh, God is telling the people of Israel. Now, if you're really going to follow God, don't you think you should get rid of your idols right here at Shechem, where Jacob, your great, 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 great grandfather buried his idols? Shouldn't you bury your idols here, too, is the clear implication of that. And then in this book, uh, Shechem was the spot where the people of Israel uh, celebrated their first grand worship service between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Uh, they had an altar that they built there, and about half the people were on one mountain, about half the people were on the other mountain. And I don't know if you remember this when we did this. They did the cursings and the blessings. You know, some people were shouting out the blessings, and some people were shouting out the cursings, depending on which side of the mountain you were on. And also at Shechem, uh, they had stones that contained the Ten Commandments. So uh, we have our, sto- our commandments up here reminding us uh, of that that happened at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. So now the people of Israel are back at the spot where they could see uh, the Ten Commandments. They still would have been there. They would have seen the altar uh, that they uh, made uh, earlier in the history of this book. It was the site where God made the promise uh, to Abraham. And now we're uh, reminding ourselves of God's faithfulness. Where did I put it now? Here we go. Adrian Sharma uh, is an eighth grader who uh, attends our church with her family. She's been hearing me talk about this theme verse for the book of Joshua for, uh, you know, how many weeks? Uh, not one of the Lord's uh, good promises failed. Every one of them was fulfilled. Joshua 21:45. So uh, she made me this plaque. I, I, you know, maybe you can take a look at it after the service. You can see up there, but it's uh, obviously beautiful. Um, it's, it's nice to know people listen. You know, when I speak and uh, anyway, I, I appreciate uh, I appreciate this. But that is the theme verse of the book of Joshua uh, through uh, the first 21 chapters. We see God uh, acting, God demonstrating his faithfulness. And, and so the victory portion of the book is done at the end of Joshua 21:45. Now we can say God has been faithful. Every single promise that God made to the people of Israel has been fulfilled. So what are chapters 22 and 23 and 24? Okay, God's been faithful. How about you? So chapter 22 as a response by the people of, of Israel to God. What are you going to do? Well, how about we be unified is uh, the focus of chapter 22. Then in chapter 23, there's another solemn assembly uh, as the people of Israel are asked. Well, so what are you going to do? God's been faithful to you. How are you going to respond to him? And chapter 24 is now our third solemn assembly. Uh, Again, the same point is God has been faithful. We've seen that for 21 chapters in this book. Now the question to you is, he's been faithful to you. Will you be faithful uh, to him? Uh, As you uh, look at the text, the text is divided into two natural segments. uh, Verses 2 through 13 are yet one more reminder of God's faithfulness. You say, what's the significance of this? Well, yet again. Uh, God is saying, I wouldn't expect you to be faithful to me if you haven't seen any evidence of my grace in your life. Uh, I wouldn't expect you to want to serve me if you haven't seen me do anything for you. You haven't seen my power. You haven't seen me answer any prayer. Uh, You haven't seen me keep any of my promises. So I want to remind you one more time of all that I have done for you over a period of 700 years. And when I'm done, if you can agree, yes, the Lord has been faithful to us. 
Well, then I'm going to come around to the question of this text. Will you be faithful uh, to the Lord? So we go through this uh, reminder of God's uh, faithfulness. Uh, and he takes us back to the time of Abraham, not to the time of Adam. And uh, you should be able to appreciate why, because Joshua is about fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham. So we start with Abraham. And as we uh, are reminded in this text, Abraham's father uh, was an idolater. Now, what does that tell us about Abraham? Uh, what we know uh, in the Bible was Abraham chosen because he would live a good and perfect life. And God said, oh, because this man lives such a good and perfect life, I'm going to choose Abraham to be my special servant. You read the book of Romans or read Galatians or read anything in the Bible. Abraham was not chosen because God looked at his life and on balance, the good far outweighed the bad. And so God said, oh, well, choose this man because he lives such a good and perfect life. No, Abraham was from a family of idolaters, uh, knowing how one worshipped those gods, also adulterers, people committed to evil. And if God in his great mercy hadn't reached down to Abraham and said, Abraham, it's not because anything special about you, but because I'm going to show you my grace, Abraham would never have been uh, God's servant. And, of course, we can look at our life if uh, uh, we understand the gospel. I mean, there's not a single one of us here who can say, the reason I've got a relationship with Jesus Christ today is because God looked down from heaven and said, oh, there's George. Man, he's cool. You know, he's a good guy, and I like the way he's living his life. You know what? I think I'm going to let George into my kingdom on the basis of his great works. God never did that with me, and he never did that with you. God uh, does not choose us because there's anything special about us. He chooses us because of his grace and his grace alone. But we continue on with the story of Abraham, though nothing particularly special about this man from the pagan background. God gave him a promise. God spoke with him. God promised to give him a land that now in the days of Joshua, the people are claiming. God promises to give him a son, Isaac. Laughter is what that name means. And he promises to give him some grandsons because your son is not going to be the end. You're going to have many more sons and ultimately a nation is going to come from you. We continue on in the text. And this is the text emphasizing the promise of God and the faithfulness of God. Uh, I like the fact that it's real because as we uh, continue on, we're reminded that sometimes we go through a struggle in experiencing grace. Sometimes we have to wait for God's grace longer than we want, like 700 years to get the land. Uh, or in Abraham's case, how long did he wait for that son of promise? 25 years. God promised he was going to have a son, and he waited 25 years for that son of promise. God also promised that that son wasn't going to be it. He's going to have grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren. Ultimately, there's going to be a nation. You know how long he waited for his first Grandchildren, 45 years he waited before the birth of Jacob and Esau. If you look at the text in the Old Testament, uh, Isaac was given the promise that Abraham received that you're going to have descendants and those descendants are going to become a nation. And uh, through that nation, all the nations, the world are going to be blessed. You know how long he waited? 20 years he waited for the promise to be fulfilled. How long can you wait? That's my problem. You know, I can, I can wait about 10 seconds. Okay, God, I know you're supposed to love me. I, I, I know you're supposed to be involved in my life. So what's taking you so long? If you really love me, God, why would you make me wait 
Ten years for my son to finally give his heart to you and decide he wants to serve you. Why would you make me wait that long? I can't stand waiting. Or it's a struggle, too, when we look at the circumstances of our life. And our circumstances might lead us to conclude, how can God love me given what I'm experiencing? If you notice the text in talking about Jacob and Esau, Esau got Mount Seir. You see what Jacob got? Egypt. Some of you have been studying the Bible for some time. You probably can complete this phrase for me. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. Now, for those of you not familiar with the Bible, that doesn't mean God hates Esau. He prefers Jacob. Uh, Jacob was the line from which Jesus Christ would come. So, Jacob have I loved. Who got Egypt? Jacob. What was in Egypt? Slavery. 400 years of slavery. What did what Esau get? The, the one that was hated. Well, he got Mount Seir and gets the land and, you know, looks like uh, he's the one that's being blessed. But the one that God had chosen, God took through what appears to be some really significant, awful, terrible times. Kind of like Alexander and the very good, no good, or however that goes. Alexander, the very good. I still can't do it. How's Alexander and the very good, no good, very bad, no good. I'm still not getting it right. Alexander and the no good, very bad. Is that it? Well, it was, it was a bad day uh, in any case for, uh, for, uh, for Alexander. I mean, we can look at that and we look at our life and we say, oh, God, if you love me, why are you letting me go through all these awful circumstances? Because God's promise is not measured by a day or by some unfortunate circumstance we may have that may be short term. And sometimes we can't see that. And it comes back to our being able to say to ourselves, does God love me or not? Can I stand upon the promises of God's word no matter what, no matter what I'm experiencing, no matter what I'm feeling right now? Can I still say Jesus loves me? This I know for the Bible tells me so. Can I say that? Here, it seems to me Joshua is uh, trying to commit us to the point where we can say that. You look at the uh, verses to follow after he talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Uh, now uh, Joshua is uh, honing in on what happened, mainly in Joshua's day. A couple of things I want to point out to you. Twenty-one times in the verses to follow, we see the name Yahweh. Uh, it's translated Lord in your uh, English Bibles. Yahweh comes from the Hebrew verb from Hayah, which means to be or to become. Yeh in Hebrew literally means he will be. So Yahweh is the God who will be there. So Bernard Ram has got a commentary in the book of Exodus simply entitled, The God Who Is There. Yahweh is the God who will be there in the lives of the people who trust him. And as you uh, scan down through the verses, notice the personal pronoun I, uh, referring to Yahweh and what he did. And also notice uh, through this text, we know that the people in Joshua's day did a little bit of fighting. But notice what the text says. The text says, I'm the one that said the hornet. I'm the one that did the, the fighting. I'm the one that had the victory. You didn't do anything. You didn't even have to fight for it. That's what God says through this, uh, this text. I have been faithful. A number of uh, weeks ago, a couple of months ago, I guess it was, I sat down with Dorothy Hanson, our children's ministry pastor, uh, and said, uh, uh, Dorothy, this experience going through the book of Joshua been kind of a neat deal for me. I'd like us to do something with the memory stones. There are nine memory stones uh, uh, in this book. Uh, I'd like us to create an exercise that families uh, can use. You can be young, you can be old, you can be in between. And hopefully this will be a way for you to remember 
what we've experienced uh, in this book. And what you see on the card is our prototype. Uh, the idea is uh, that you can uh, take these home, make your own memory stones. I wish I could show these uh, to you, but uh, I don't know if you can see this. We have uh, all of you, everything that you have in the card, Miranda Johnson from our church, has made stones, and she has put the images on these stones. I don't, you can't see this in the back, but this would be uh, the sun on this stone. Uh, the idea being uh, individually, as an adult, or with your family, you can pull out a stone, remind yourself of the great faithfulness of God. Uh, you can apply this not just to the book of Joshua. You'll see as you read the instructions, you can apply this just to our, our daily life. But hopefully this is a way for us to remember uh, what we uh, see in the book of Joshua. And going through this quickly. There are nine stones. Stone number one is a stone of victory. Uh, that uh, stone was placed in the middle of the Jordan River to remind the people of Israel the day that God caused the Jordan River to back up 26 miles to Adam as the people of Israel passed on dry ground. Uh, stone number two uh, is a, a stone. We're calling it a stone of faithfulness. These are the 12 stones that the people of Israel took to Gilgal uh, and put at Gilgal, which was the uh, home base uh, for the people of Israel. That was their hometown as they were doing all this fighting. So they had these 12 stones to remind themselves of what God did in bringing them into the promised land. God has been uh, faithful. Stone three uh, in the book is the stone of judgment. This was the gravestone that marked the grave of Achan, who sinned against God. And uh, he was stoned. There was a pile of stones that were put over him. So this is a stone that reminds us that we need to confess our sins. We need to tell Jesus, I'm sorry, in order to uh, uh, be restored. Once we have done that, we go on to stone four, which is a stone of victory. This was a stone that marked the gravesite of the king of Ai after God gave them victory once they confessed, confessed sin. Uh, stone five uh, are, is the uh, altar at Mount Ebal in Shechem. You know, this is where they were. So they're having this worship service uh, in, uh, in Shechem. Stone six are, are the stones on which they inscribe the Ten Commandments, which also would have been at Shechem. They should easily have been able to see these uh, as uh, we're going through the experience of Joshua 24. Stone seven uh, is a stone of victory. This was the victory that God gave when the sun stood still, when God caused hailstones to come down with such pinpoint accuracy that he killed the enemy. But none of these hailstones fell on the Israelites. So this is a time when the people of Israel were reminding themselves of uh, the way that God miraculously intervened on their, on their behalf. The eighth stone in the book of Joshua is a stone of unity. This was a stone that they uh, put down uh, by the Jordan River to remind themselves of the two and a half tribes that were on the other side of Jordan and the nine and a half tribes on uh, the uh, west side of Jordan were going to stay united with one another. Uh, they weren't going to let little spats divide them. They were going to be committed to one another in love and unity. And then the ninth stone uh, is a stone we read about in Joshua 24, where uh, Joshua tells the people of Israel, if you're really going to serve the Lord, let's put a stone here to remind ourselves of the commitment that we have made to God in this place. So Joshua in these uh, uh, 13 verses is reminding the people of Israel all that God did for them. Uh, going back to the time of Abraham and through the history of this book and the net effect of this is, okay, so now you tell me, has God been faithful? Uh, has God intervened? Uh, over these last 25 years, which is about the time that has elapsed uh, from the beginning of the people claiming the promised land till the time of this commitment. Has God been faithful for us 
over these last 25 years. Yeah, there was a period, uh, as we mentioned, maybe six, seven years when they were in the northern period. There are no miracles. Nothing extraordinary happens. It's just slugging it out, doing the battle. Yeah, that was a hard period. I didn't see anything miraculous happen during that period. But over 25 years, can we say God has been faithful to us? And the answer has got to be yes. Sure. God's been faithful. Well, that gets us to the climactic point of, uh, of this passage then. Where Joshua uh, 24, 14 through 17, Joshua then charges them, I want you to fear and serve the Lord. And if you don't want to do that, how about this as an option? Why don't you go back and, and serve the gods of Terah, you know, Abraham's dad? Or if you don't want to do that, why don't you just serve the gods of the Amorites, you know, these, you know, these Canaanite gods and the Canaanite pantheon? That's what you want to do. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And what has got to be the emotional climax of this book? Now you need a picture, two million people, uh, at Shechem with these mountains, Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim behind them, and the Ten Commandments, the altar where they had worshipped earlier uh, in, uh, in clear view of everybody. Now, two million people are responding in unison, We will serve the Lord! You think, oh, that's cool. I mean, two million people thundering through the door, We're going to serve the Lord! One of the commentators uh, that I uh, looked at this last week said that the next statement we read is the most shocking statement in the Old Testament. You look at Joshua 24 and verse 19. Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. Can you imagine Billy Graham at one of his great crusades? He preaches his heart out telling people to turn from sin and to turn from God, and he gives the invitation. Tens of thousands of people are starting to come forward, and Billy Graham looks at this throng that is coming forward. He said, oh, wait, wait. Go back to your seats, because I don't think you know what you're doing. That's what's happening here. Can can you imagine you're sitting down with uh, your most significant client? You've been trying to sell them on this $500,000 product that you have. They're with you all the way. And yeah, 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 yeah. Would you like to buy? And they say, yeah, where do I sign? And then you say, no, no, I don't think you mean it. Pulling the contract away. You know, you don't get to sign this now. You know, can you imagine that? That's what's happening here. You say, Joshua, Joshua, don't you know the first thing about persuasion? Man, you got these people ready to eat out of your hands. What are you doing telling them they don't know what they're doing? But what he is suggesting here is, uh, you don't have your theology straight yet. Till you know who God is, I don't think you're ready to make this commitment. Now, we can pause and say, in our society today, if you were to ask anybody, what do you think is the primary character of God? When you think about God, you know, what are the words that come to mind? Well, I can tell you the primary one in our society today, God is love. I mean, what else describes God? God is love. Notice that's not a word we see in Joshua's explanation as to what they're getting wrong. We might also say today, well, God is mercy. Don't see that's the problem either. Not in this text. And God is love and God is mercy. We might say, well, God is all powerful. 
Well, that didn't seem to be the problem that the people of Israel had. They apparently knew something about the power of God, but there were two words that described God that they weren't getting. And I would suggest in the 21st century church, the same two words we don't get today. God is holy. And one we choke on. I can't imagine as we are praying and, you know, you're uh, praying about the attributes of God. We praise God for his omnipotence and we praise God for uh, his omniscience and we praise God for his love. We praise God for his mercy. When's the last time in your prayer you've prayed God, praise God for his jealousy? But Joshua says, that's what you're not getting. You don't understand uh, that the uh, God who's asking you to serve him is a holy God and he is a jealous God, that's what you're missing. So what does holiness mean? Uh, holy comes from the uh, Hebrew verb form kavash, which means to be set apart. So if we're holy, we are set apart. We're special. We're distinct. We're somehow different. The book of the Old Testament uh, that uh, distinctly calls God the holy God is the book of Isaiah. And uh, we can't do an exhaustive study on holiness in the book of Isaiah, but let me just tease you with a couple of verses uh, that uh, get, uh, I think, effectively at what this word holy means. Uh, we'll just start with Isaiah 44 in uh, verse 6. You don't need to turn to this. I'm just going to read a couple of verses here. There are lots of these throughout the book of Isaiah. Do we have these on the overhead? I guess we don't. Uh, Isaiah uh, 44 and verse 6. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Or we can go to verse eight in the same chapter. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Do not proclaim this and foretell it long ago. You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know of not one. Or uh, chapter 45 in verses 5 and 6. Uh, same thought again. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Uh, Walter Eichrote is probably not a name familiar to uh, many of you, but he is a giant in Old Testament uh, studies. Uh, he makes this statement about the jealousy of God. He says, the basic element in the whole Old Testament idea of God is that the God of the Old Testament is a jealous God. And as we think about the jealousy of God, God in his jealousy demands that we serve him and we serve him alone. What separates Christianity and Judaism from all the other religions of the world uh, is that if you're a Hindu and someone comes to you and says, uh, would you worship Jesus? Ah, sure. We just put Jesus up here with the pantheon of all our other gods. Yeah, I'll, I'll serve Jesus. Or you go to a Buddhist. You know, would you accept Christ? Oh, sure, I accept Christ and I accept all these other thousand gods. We'll put, we'll put Christ up here on the pantheon of all our other gods. Or if you go back to the Old Testament, uh, the Canaanite uh, gods or the Egyptian gods, same thing. They're all polytheistic. So except Jesus, yeah, we'll just stick him right up here with all these other gods that I have in my life. Sure, I accept Jesus. But do you recognize that the God of the Bible is a holy God? He's a jealous God. 
He asks for absolute surrender and commitment to him. And when you accept him, that's it. You can't have any other gods. And today, uh, as I said, I, uh, we look at this and we say, God help the church uh, where all we seem to know is that God is a God of love. And don't misunderstand me. God is a God of love. But I've had so many people tell me this. They know they're committing some sin in their life, something that God wouldn't approve. Uh, and then you ask them, so why are you going to do this? Well, God is a God of love. And I've had people say exactly these words to me. God is just going to have to forgive me for what I'm doing because he's a God of love. Well, God's a God of love. But he's a holy God. And he's a jealous God. And God doesn't have to forgive you anything. So don't you dare presume on God's character and say, it doesn't matter how I live. What did Jesus say? What's the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. You think there's room in there for you to say, oh, God, you're God, you're a God of love and I can do anything I want. It doesn't matter because, you know, you don't care. You're just going to go ahead and forgive me and forgive me and forgive because you don't care how I live. Or what about what Paul says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 12, uh, where he commands us to rid our mortal souls of sin as if we can do that. Or where Paul in Romans chapter 12 says, what you should do is present your body as a living sacrifice to God. That's your reasonable act of service. Or uh, James, the brother of Jesus, when he says, now what you need to do is to confess your sins to one another that you may be healed, as if to say, we can be healed. We don't have to live these weak lives, these lives where there isn't any power in our life, these lives where we're on one side of Easter and, and the wrong side of Pentecost, because God wants us to experience power in our life. And in, if we don't claim what is ours in Christ, well, then that's our fault. We're talking about basic commitment stuff here. When I was in the ninth grade, um, I gave Penny Miller a going steady ring. Did any of you do something like that? There she is. I gave her one of these going uh, uh, steady rings. And when I gave her the going steady ring, you know, I was pledging my faithfulness to Penny. We we're going to be exclusive. Remember that stupid phrase? Too? We're going to be exclusive. You know, Penny, you know, I'm your guy. You're my gal. You know how long that lasted? Well, about a summer. You know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was six months or thereabouts. Uh, she ended up going to the prom with one of my best friends, uh, uh, Mark uh, Wellington. Uh, she was a member. Yeah, there we go. And that was me. Uh, and yeah, that's I didn't write that part either. Uh, <laughs> the reason I share that is uh, as we look at what's happening in Joshua chapter 24, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, I'm committed to the Lord. Absolutely. You know, I'm going to I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to do whatever Jesus says. And Joshua said, don't be so don't be so sure about that. God demands that you have an exclusive relationship with him. Because he's a holy God and he's a jealous God. Well, the people of Israel hear that. And for a second time, two million people shout out, we will serve the Lord. And then notice verse 23. Joshua has just been talking about holiness. He's just been talking about jealousy. Now, for the second time, the people of Israel in unison shout out, we're going to serve the Lord. And what does Joshua say? Verse 23. Well, if you're going to do that, here's an idea. 
How about you get rid of the foreign gods that are in your homes right now? You say, well, duh. Did they hear what he was saying at all? And there's nothing in the text to suggest that they got rid of those foreign gods. I mean, I'd like to see another verse where, you know, they all went in their homes, they got the foreign gods, and just like Jacob, they buried the foreign gods right there in Shechem, just like Jacob. That's not said in this text. You know, this is a bit speculative. It makes me wonder, did they ever get around to doing that? We know by the time we get to Judges, they haven't. I mean, the gods are back. It's, yeah, it's, it's Jesus and everybody else uh, in the, the book of Judges. I, you know, Jesus, when you can do something for me, yeah, you can be my Jesus. But when it comes to me acknowledging that you're a holy God, and what is it that Jesus said? Be thou holy to us as the Lord your God is holy. What did Peter say? Peter said, be thou holy as the Lord your God is holy. And you say, well, I can't do that. Yeah, that's right. You can't. So what do you do then? I, I want to get on this other side of Pentecost. What am I supposed to do? Well, here's what you do. First of all, you expect that what the Bible says is true. It is, so often we can live defeated lives because we're expecting to live defeated lives. We can say, well, I know I can't conquer this sin. I know I can't get rid of this sin in my mortal body. I know I can't do anything. So I'm just going to have to live with this. Well, the first thing we have to do is say that is stinking thinking. Look at the Bible. The Bible says that we can be rid of sin. It says it. So then we've got to change our expectations. Say, well, if that's what the Bible says, it must be true. Okay, that's the first step. Then what's the second step? Well, the second step is that I recognize I can't do this in and of myself. I've tried. I don't have the strength. I don't, I don't have the ability. So what do I need? Well, I need strength from God. It's not about me trying to live for him. It's, it's God living through me. So if that's what I need... Well, how about the second step? Pray that the Holy Spirit of God come into my life and give me power and strength and hope that I don't have. What does Jesus say? Uh, if uh, an earthly father is going to give stones, or I mean stones, an earthly father is not going to give stones to his children. He's going to give bread to his children. Well, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So ask. Because you can't do it yourself. And then as you're expecting to experience this victorious life, as you're praying that God give you the Holy Spirit, there's one more thing that you can do. Uh, you can get into an accountability relationship whereby you can ultimately be healed. James lays this out for us in uh, James chapter 5. Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. If you... Uh, Need to be a part of every man's battle? Well, then get to be a part of every man's battle. Don't expect that you can handle sin by yourself. The Bible gives us a pattern for establishing the victorious life. So don't tell yourself, I've got to keep living with this defeat, because you don't have to. We get to the end of this after Joshua says, you know, maybe it would be a good idea to get rid of these foreign idols. The third time now in verse 24, two million people shout out, we will serve the Lord. And then Joshua says, okay, okay, now it's third time. I've been telling you, God's a holy God. God's a jealous God. You need to get rid of all these uh, uh, foreign idols in your life. You need to serve God alone. But if you mean it this time, here is our ninth stone that is going to serve as a witness to you. I'm going to die. He's 110 at the time he's saying that I'm going to die soon. But this stone is going to stand as a memorial to the testimony that you've made to God today. And people says, great. Let it be a witness. So the ninth stone was erected in Shechem as a witness to the commitment that the people of Israel had made. And then we have three funeral services that end this book, kind of anticlimactic in, in many ways. Joshua dies at age 110. 
uh, and he is buried in the promised land. And uh, one thing you need to be careful not to miss, for the first time in this book, Joshua is called the servant of the Lord. Remember when we started? Joshua was going to be the leader of the people of Israel. And Moses was the servant of the Lord. And he had seen all these miracles. And all it says about Joshua is that Joshua was Moses' aide. And so you say, bummer for Joshua. You know, he's following this great man, Moses. Now, finally, at the end of the book, the same title that was given to Moses in chapter 1 is now given to Joshua. Because he's proven it through uh, the faithfulness of his life. He is one who can say, I've been serving the Lord. And I am a servant of the Lord. And he's buried then in the promised land. And then Joseph... Uh, is also buried in the promised land. Uh, back in Genesis 50, he knew that God was going to keep his promise. He knew that even though he might die in Egypt, uh, that God was going to give the promised land to the people. So bury my bones in Shechem, this piece of property that I have purchased, and that happens uh, as we close the book. And then Eliezer, as uh, Moses had his Aaron, Eliezer was Joshua's Aaron. He was the high priest of this period. So he was the spiritual leader. He was the one who helped uh, Joshua as they were uh, distributing the tribes to the various uh, groups and so on. So now the political leader Joshua is buried in the promised land and the spiritual leader Eliezer is buried in the promised land, all demonstrating God's faithfulness to his people. Now, I've been uh, thinking about this message for uh, quite a few weeks. This is obviously the climax to the book. And so how do we end it? You know, I, at one point I thought, well, maybe the way we end is we you know, give an altar call. Everyone, everyone is going to serve alone. Come on down to the front. Uh, we uh, did something like this a couple of weeks ago with Phil Donner. Is 90% of you in both services said we're going to be disciple makers. And I'm going to hold you to that, uh, uh, by the way. That's what she said before the Lord. Um, and then in a couple of weeks, uh, two weeks from today, we're going to give another challenge. There will be another opportunity to respond uh, to uh, indicate whether you're going to make a commitment to worldwide evangelization. So there will be an invitation then. And I thought, well, I'm... You know, how many how many invitations do we give? So what I'd like to do today is um, what they did in Joshua's day. Your line is, we will serve the Lord. Only say it if you mean it. Three times in the text, uh, the people of Israel said, we will serve the Lord. We're going to end this way. Three times, I'm going to ask you to repeat that phrase, uh, we will uh, serve the Lord. So as we conclude our study in the book of Joshua, I can say, as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. (laughs) Now, know when you say that, that God is a holy God and he's a jealous God. So if you mean it, say it again. Now, if you've got some foreign idol, something in your life, some sin that needs to be confessed, we'll confess it. But if you really mean it, say it again. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father. If there's anything else that you have taught me through Joshua chapter 24 is that we need to take you seriously. God, I confess that I don't often think of you as a jealous God. That seems so harsh. But I also know the word jealous can be translated as zealous. Uh, And we can ask ourselves, is there zeal in my life for the Lord Jesus Christ? Would people look at me and say, he or she, they're zealous for God. That can easily be a barometer of how seriously I'm taking my commitment to you. Father, you know the desire that we have here in this church uh, to live for you and serve you. You know the difficulties we face, too. The times where we wonder if you really love us when we have to wait. It seems like an inordinate amount of time for you to demonstrate your faithfulness to us, and that can discourage us. Or when we're going through some circumstance we don't understand, and we find ourselves in the light of the circumstance saying, God, do you really care about me at all? Or when we find ourselves involved in some sin. 
And we believe the lie that we can't rid ourselves of sin in our mortal bodies. And so we just live with it. God, forgive us for that. Bring us to the point where we expect victory, just like uh, they learned to expect victory in Joshua's day. And then, Father, in expecting victory, may we do what the New Testament tells us to do, to come before you and say, Lord, I can't do this on my own. So, God, I pray that you'll fill me with your spirit. God, enable me to walk in the power of the spirit of God, that I might be able to demonstrate the fruit of the spirit, that I might be able to say I'm not quenching the spirit of God. And then, Father, for those of us who need to get into some sort of accountability group or meet with brothers and sisters and do what James says, confess our sins to one another that we may be healed. God, you help us to get past our pride. Help us to get to the point where we recognize that doing this on our own hasn't been effective. Uh, So, God, may we humble ourselves and be able to honestly say in our family, to our wives and to our children, I'm struggling this area. Pray for me. Pray that God will give me victory and pray that with expectation that you're going to do it. Father, as we go to our ABFs this morning in Sunday school classes, as we enter into our walk-a-day worlds this week, God, may we go armed with the reality that you go with us, that you have proven your faithfulness over and over again, and it starts with that. If we look to you, that you're going to demonstrate your faithfulness yet one more time. So, God, in seeing how you've shown us your grace, how you've answered prayers, how you've worked in our lives, May we truly be able to say this week and this day, we will serve the Lord.